Shrink Wrap Radio number 808, Sherry Walling, Ph.D., on Touching Two Worlds and Finding Hope. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Sherry Walling, a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. We'll be discussing her 2022 book, Touching Two Worlds, A Guide for Finding Hope in the Landscape of Loss. Now, here is the interview. Dr. Sherry Walling, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. It is great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's really uh, great to have this opportunity to speak with you. We're going to be talking about your book, which is not quite out yet. I understand it's going to be released in a week or two. And so it's nice uh, to get in one of the first licks here in discussing your book. <laughs> You're an early influencer here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I like that. And um, so we're going to be discussing your book, and the title is Touching Two Worlds, A Guide for Finding Hope in the Landscape of Loss. And I want to say at the outset that I really felt your presence in the book and I know I'm going to feel it here. Uh, I had a recent guest who who said uh, I was decrying the fact that we could only be together virtually, psychoanalyst. And, and she said, uh, I don't look at it that way. I, I experience you, you experience me, and uh, we're here with each other right now in the here and now. And that made an impact on me, I must say. And um, so I really want us to have that quality here. And as much as I came to be moved by your book, initially, before I got into reading the book, I read your bio. And, um, you know, they say you can't judge a package by its wrapping. So before I got into the, into the book, I looked through your bio, and what I saw was success, success, success as a therapist, as a business owner, a consultant, a podcaster, and so on. So certainly I congratulate you on all of that, but I didn't see the vulnerability that might connect you and me until I got into the book. And then as soon as I got into the book, even in the book's introduction, I saw your grief that you shared so openly and so powerfully. And just to bring our viewers and listeners up to date, you lost your father to cancer and your brother to suicide within a six-month period. So yeah, these things came to the day. 
wham, bam, and, uh, and hit you really hard. And, uh, but let's step through your story. Um, what were your growing up years like with your father? Mm, I grew up in Northern California in a little city called Redding, okay. which um, is, is well known for its beautiful mountains and lakes. Uh, it also is a top producer of methamphetamine and has um, a lot of mega churches, big churches. So it's, <laughs> it's an interesting community. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm in California, Northern California, I don't think I've ever gone to Redding. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't I mean, sound like again, I'm missing much. <laughs> except well, the beauty. I, yeah. Except the beauty. And so I grew up in a in a very uh, religious family, and my dad was a youth pastor for much of my upbringing, and so um, that was a, a big part of you know shaping my upbringing. I think, especially as a as a young girl and as a young woman, we the the community that we were part of, uh, women weren't to speak from the the front of the church were to speak mm-hmm. from the pulpit, so to speak. And so there was a lot of kind of messaging around gender that I had to work through as a kid, uh, but also enjoyed with my dad, a lot of the beauty of the community that we we're living in. So we'd spent a lot of time at the lake and spent a lot of time being outside. And so like most people's childhoods, it's a, it's a mixed bag. There were some gifts and there were some challenges. Yeah. What are the words that come to mind to describe his personality? Would you say the first five or six words that come to mind? <laughs> um, he was, he was kind of a pain in the ass. He was okay. just, he was kind and playful, but also pretty type A, um, really needed things to be done just so, kind of his way or or no way. Um, but he also had a tenderness for his children. Uh, he always had a dog. He was really sweet with his dogs. He was sweet with my mother. So he had a, a deep kindness and also a rigidity that I found certainly frustrating as, as his daughter. Yeah. yeah. By the way, the... Uh, I also grew up part-time evangelical, so uh, I have some understanding of what you're talking about uh, about that. I loved your uh, chapter where you talked about heaven, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe maybe we'll get to that. But uh, uh, and let's just touch in with your brother, although we'd be talking about him more too. Um, so, what words come to mind when you think of your brother during childhood? Yeah, during childhood, he was really silly. He's seven years younger than me. So he was often the like, the cute, silly, you know, did a funny dance, made us laugh. Um, He was, we sort of all doted on him, but he, uh, he, he, he held that without becoming kind of a bratty baby, you know, like the youngest child who gets what they want. He he didn't have that vibe. He had a real vibe of, of kindness and sweetness and playfulness. Yeah. Tell us something about your mother. Hmm. My mom, her name is Marsha. She's also, um, has a gentleness about her. She, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a year after I was born. So she went through her life, you know, kind of carrying that illness and at different levels of mobility and focus um, were kind of the two things that were most impacted by her diagnosis, but she was just a very kind of a turtle, like slow and steady. 
very present, very consistent, very steady. And I, I marvel at that now as I'm an adult and raising children that she raised three children with, you know, pretty compromised ability to move around. Um, so I have a lot of respect for her. Yeah. So going back to your bio again, I'm really impressed by uh, by your high achievement level, and I'm wondering where did where did where does that come from? That motivation, that drive in you for achievement, which seems to really characterize your life. Yeah. Well, I'm the I'm the oldest daughter in a family with significant uh, disability. So I'm sure any of your listeners who've read any Adlerian theory or, or thought about uh, how birth order affects things, I really felt that. I, I felt in my mom's illness, some of the struggle that my family needed me to kind of be okay. And I also felt that I wasn't always a great fit for the evangelical community that I was growing up in. I had a lot of questions. I had a busy mind. I wanted to learn things. I had a, I, you know, a gentle way of really challenging the assumptions that I was given. And so the combination of um, kind of being a mini adult and also having a pretty uh, subversive curiosity really led me to be quite successful in school. And thankfully that outlet was available to me because that became it was in my mind then and became my path out or my path to more choices, yes, uh, which yes. was reinforced over and over through all different levels of my education. Yeah. So going back to your father, uh, what was the relationship like in your adult years? My dad did a great job of supporting me as I launched into adulthood. He was probably a little overbearing when I was a child, but he just released or relaxed into watching me thrive without, you know, without continuing to be too directive. So I was grateful for that. I think he kind of launched me well. Um, And our relationship was closer when I was an adult than it was when I was a child. He also really loved being a grandfather. And so, you know, as many folks can relate, when you see your parent really loving on your children with a a kind of playfulness and lightness that maybe you didn't experience as a child, there's something very like restorative and healing about that. So Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed him as an adult. Yeah. So then at some point he came down with cancer. He did. He was diagnosed with stage four. Uh, metastatic esophageal cancer um, in in February of 2017. So right out of the gate, he was at stage four already. Yeah. By the time he was diagnosed, the the tumor had grown all the way through the esophageal wall. And I I think was something like eight centimeters long. It was pretty giant. So esophageal cancer is sort of like that, you know, by the time you have symptoms by the time it impacts your functioning, it's generally because the tumor has grown quite large. Wow. And so how long was the period uh, of illness and before he passed away? There was about 18 months between his diagnosis and uh-huh. his death. Yeah. And he was a really determined fighter, which was interesting to watch. I write about this a little bit in the book because when I read the statistics and heard the diagnosis, I was in the room 
um, when the doctors were kind of talking about his prognosis with him, I sort of thought, you know, this is, this is sort of an end of life quality of life scenario, but he really wanted to engage whatever treatment options were available to him. And so he did lots and lots of chemo clinical trials, kind of anything that he could to try to have more time. Um, which was his way, right? A little bit tenacious, a little bit stubborn. Yeah, yeah. So you were already uh, well-established at this point, right, in your adult life, right? You were already, yep. Yep. Uh, uh, a lot of the things that we see on your bio had already happened for you. And, and nevertheless, uh, his death hit you really hard. Well, sure, I think your professional success is not the same as right. the tenderness of your heart, yeah. right? They, yeah. They're related, but they don't, one doesn't determine the other. Yeah. And I think his death hit me hard because I loved him so much and also generally walk through the world with a kind of open-hearted tenderness that you wouldn't see in my bio. Cause that's a list of things I've done, right, not a list right. of things I care about. Right. Right. And and you, that you you describe the the grief as really uh, hitting you in the belly, uh, uh, really hard. Yeah, you, you make it very vivid in in the book that uh, that the grief was uh, very powerful. And uh, I don't remember if it was right after your brothers, maybe the succession of the two, where you just uh, uh, were overcome by by the grief for a bit. I think the two deaths had some similarities and some differences. and and some of why some of what became clear as I was writing about these experiences was how I held the griefs differently. So I was with my dad when he died. I was laying in bed with him. Um, when he took his last breath, my mother was there. So we're both of mm. my brothers. And in many ways, it was a very sacred, beautiful experience. And it felt, I felt so much gratitude to be able to be there and so yeah. much reverence for that moment of passing from the known life to the unknown, whatever it is on the right. other side. Yeah. And of course I grieved him because I'm, I missed him as a father. I missed him as a grandparent to my children. I missed him as a companion and caretaker for my mother. Like there was a huge hole there, but losing my brother to suicide had a very different quality because I, I wasn't with him. You know, he died alone. He died in a field in Montana. He was far away. There wasn't the kind of intimate tenderness, loving moment where I could sort of bear witness and also be present as he moved on. And that was a, that was a more traumatic loss for sure. I think there's also something developmentally different about, you know, as adults, we understand that we will likely lose our parents, but to lose my brother when he was 33 just felt like a disruption of the developmental order, right? I was supposed to, you can hear my supposed to cognitive language there, but supposed to grow old with my brother. He's supposed to, you know, go along with me in life. Yeah, and so yeah. that loss felt very different. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you, as again, you describe it very vividly in the book as that you wanted to lash out, you wanted to break something, you wanted to screw something. Uh, you just, um, it was, it really got beneath all the conscious defenses. Right, all of those prefrontal yeah. cortex like yeah. process. And, and that is trauma, right? That's, I think, where I would say my dad's death was not traumatic for me. Yeah. My brother's death was, and I felt it very differently in my body, that yeah. kind of deep level animal survival kind of moment of feeling like almost not human, almost just a body in pain. Yeah, you were in, in your animal. As a matter of fact, you mm -hmm. write about uh, at the cellular level that you felt some, you felt changed by grief at the cellular level, that your experience of yourself, of your own body was dramatically shifted. Yeah, it helped me understand, you know, the language we use in our culture is the language of shock. Yeah. Like I've used that word so many times. Oh, were you shocked? That sounds shocking. I, I, we, I use it all the time, but it wasn't until that moment that I received the phone call that my brother was dead, that I felt shocked in the like lightning way, in the electrical yeah. way. Yeah. And like my whole system sort of was rocked by this news that, you know, is not unlike what it feels like when you're shocked with electricity and your whole body recoils like, ah, you have this this big reaction. Yeah. Sometimes so I understood that language in a new way. Yeah. Fall on the floor. Did you fall on the floor? I when did. You, yeah. I was outside. I was on the back deck of my home. I was on the phone with my mom oh, wow. and I just kind of crumbled on the, in the dirt really um, in the backyard. Um, I will say though, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for the embodied experience because I think sometimes we hold that shock in our minds in a way that is incongruent with our body's experience. So the fact that all of me from my brain to my toes had this kind of reaction, as I look back on it, feels you know, quote unquote, healthier, feels congruent, yeah. feels yeah. embodied, feels whole. I didn't have in that moment, the burden of needing to be a grown up, of needing to take care of anybody or anything. I didn't have to keep up an appearance. Nobody was watching me. I could just crumble and yeah. it was what I needed to do. Yeah. And it, I think it mattered in the long run to how I processed that grief. Yeah. Yeah. You have a section that you, uh, talked about uh, Freud was right. What what are you getting at there? What, what did Freud get right that you discovered in that moment? Well, I was playing with those basic drives that Freud talked about, Thanatos and libido. Thanatos, of course, being that drive towards destruction, right? These are the, the drives that live in the id that the rest yeah. of our personality is trying to control and manage. But in this moment, the drive towards destruction, that sense of, I want to claw something. I want to kill something. I want to, I kind of felt like I tapped into this, not to mix my theorists, but this collective unconscious of violence, because I, there was something in me that just wanted to erupt. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and then at the same time, I had this other urge that was, that was almost more sexual. It was like something in me that wanted to recreate, wanted to feel the aliveness of another body. And so, you know, I walk around as a very put together professional, you know, I'm a mother, I, I take care of things, but to have this experience that sort of thrust me into the depths of those libidinal urges, um, you know, was certainly kind of a life-changing moment for me, for yeah. me to really feel the power of yeah. my body's drives in that moment. So without being hopefully Pollyannish about it, can we say that there are gifts that you received through your grief? I think there are gifts to allowing yourself to be dismantled and reconstructed. I think I have come to these experiences with a pretty open heart and that has contained a lot of goodness for me. Yeah. Would you say that your, um, all of your training in psychology and therapy and experience doing those things did that provide any support for you? I think the gift the of cognitive having been part. A, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there are probably a couple of ways. The gift of having been a clinician is that, you know, I, I spent a year at the National Center for PTSD in Boston. I've worked a lot in the trauma space. And because of that work, I have seen people live through all manner of unlivable situations. So I know thousands of stories of people who have survived loss and maintained a quality of life despite that pain. So I just know part of my default script was like, this is terrible and I feel miserable, but I'm going to be okay. Like I'm going to go on in my life and have meaningful, joyful, beautiful experiences because my clients taught me about that. Mm -hmm. The other piece of being a clinician that was really helpful in these experiences is that I, I had some language for what was happening. Yeah. You know, I knew that right after my brother died and I started doing the math of like, what could I have done to prevent this? Is this my fault? Should I have not said this or said mm -hmm. that? Like, I knew that that I knew I was having this, this sort of worldview crisis that I was struggling to cognitively integrate this experience into how I saw the world. And so having the label for that, the language for that, it didn't mean I didn't have to do it. It didn't mean I get a pass from doing that internal work, but at least it meant I knew what was happening and that it was, you know, quote unquote, normal for me to have those questions yeah. and I didn't feel lost in it. Yeah. You use the word joy just now. And uh, that became an important uh, gift. I think that came out of all of this and, and you spoke about it in the context of uh, somebody that you of a colleague that you've worked with, who's deep into Joseph Campbell's hero of the journey and Joseph Campbell talks about bliss, and you said your friend had emphasized that somehow bliss didn't feel like it was quite the right word for our time and place. 
and somehow you contacted with the word joy, which makes sense to me right away. I, I kind of get that. But but talk about the bliss versus joy. What 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 are we getting at there? Oh, I don't know that I have a really good language to explain the semantic differences, but I think for me, bliss felt almost too far, like too detached from the nitty gritty of the world. And joy felt more anchored to the world. Like I feel like I can have my feet in grief and my head in joy. Like I can span the whole range of experience. Yeah. In fact, that's why the book is called Touching Two Worlds. It's about that experience of being alive and in joy and in beauty and raising children and having a cool career and all of that stuff. And also being able to have a hand in death and loss and grief and trauma and moments of hopelessness and knowing that there's enough space within me to span the full range of the spectrum. Yeah, that's what I love about the Jungian perspective is the idea of needing to uh, contain both, to to yeah. uh, not to over-identify with one polarity or the other, and to to hold both, which is challenging in this world of opposites right. in, in which yeah. we live and are constantly confronted with uh, things that are trying to pull us this way or that way, you know, and how can we find that middle path and kind of uh, what you described so well, you know, in your image of touching both worlds. I really feel that. And I am really thankful for the union language around shadow, right? Light mm -hmm. and shadow, mm -hmm. grief and love, right? They sort of map together. They, they're the inverse of each other, but intricately intertwined. You can't sort yeah. of have one without the other. Yeah, yeah. Now, as if there weren't already enough uh, pain in your story, uh, I was uh, shocked to read in the afterword, which I, you know, might not have made it to the afterword, but I did read the afterword where I discovered that you lost uh, a daughter of about three and a half years old. Yeah, she uh, was a, a family foster placement that came to live with us when she was seven. Um, and she was with us for almost four years. Oh, and I then see. things conspired such that she went back to live with her biological mother, which was which was not expected by our family. And so it, it's a it's an interesting, ambiguous grief, if I could use that term in the sense that she didn't die. So there wasn't a funeral and there wasn't, you know, people didn't bring cards or bring food or, you know, there wasn't, nobody sat Shiva, but um, she still was a daily part of my life. And then she was gone quite quickly. So you experienced a kind of mother loss as a, yeah. the mother part of you, the mother bear who felt like losing one of your cubs. Oh yeah. Not felt like it very much was. And, yeah. and she went back to a, to a mother who had not previously been successful at keeping her safe. So, you know, I had all kinds of fear around, is she going to be okay? Yeah. And we're a couple of years out from that now, and she's still with her mother and does seem to be okay, you know, safe. But um, 
Yeah. To lose the three in a row. Who there were definitely times I didn't know if I'd make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> one of the interesting things is that you've become a trapeze artist. And, and, <laughs> yes, good transition. <laughs> yeah. And uh, synchronistically, I went to a circus yesterday, a small circus you know, which was planned before this interview was even on on my radar. And, uh, you know, so I saw the kind of thing you do, I think, you know, at this small family circus, traveling circus. So tell us about that, how you got into that and what it means to you. Yeah. So I, I started practicing yoga about 15 years ago and was integrating it into my clinical work, really kind of, you know, learning from folks like Bessel van der Kolk about the interrelationship between the body and our mental well-being. Um, But I moved from California to Minnesota and really needed an indoor activity, as you can imagine, if you've spent any time in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up at an aerial yoga class, which is where there's a fabric suspended from the ceiling that really is used in yoga to help deepen your stretch. It's a supported yoga. But I learned from that experience that uh, the community that I live in, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, has a really deep circus community. There's a circus training school here that trains children. And as a result, a lot of those kids grow up and they still want to participate in aerial or in circus arts. And so I got involved in the community and it became, it really kind of became the soundtrack to my grief story. So right as my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I started just to train as an aerialist. Um, you know, a couple times a week, sometimes every day. And it became that big body motion that I needed that was somewhat cathartic, but also just took my mind off of the pain that I was going through. You know, when I'm on the trapeze or on an aerial fabric, like I have to pay attention exactly precisely to what I'm doing. So there's not a lot of space for distraction, which I found to be um, really nice, like a very healthy alternative reality in which my body was strong and my mind was clear, Yeah. even though in my on the ground reality, my heart was in pain and my mind was foggy and mm. the people I love, I was losing. Yeah. Yeah. I can identify with that. There was a period in which I became a glider pilot and part oh, of, yeah. you know, and part of it was, uh, to train my attention, I noticed how much my mind would wander, you know, <laughs> and go on automatic. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to pay really close attention to, you know, to what this uh, teacher is telling me because my life's going to depend on it. They can't get a ladder up there or anything. And uh, so, yeah, I can relate to that whole thing of finding an activity that's so thoroughly engages your consciousness that uh, it just can distract you from uh, other things. And sometimes we call those non-ordinary states, right? You're outside of your day-to-day experience. You're 
you know, walking around self and get to enter, you know, a little bit of an alternative reality, whether that's through meditation or breath work or these kind of higher risk experiences that we see, I think they sort of jumpstart some part of our consciousness in a way that, you know, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I've been interested in, um, uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and that kind of fits some of what you're saying in terms of needing something that breaks you out of your pattern do you have any thoughts about that any i do know, since, I actually write yeah. about this a little bit in my book and i've uh, i've trained with maps to provide yeah. psychedelic supported psychotherapy of course it's not yet uh through the fda so not not available in the u.s um, right. at least with with MDMA or psilocybin. Um, so that's been um, an important part of my journey. I actually was able to go overseas and participate in psychedelic supported psychotherapy as okay. a patient and yes. worked with MDMA, um, which very specifically helped me to grieve because it gave me a deep sense of compassion for my experience. So uh, one example is, um, you know, I mentioned that I was with my dad when he died and that that was very important to me, but the role that I played in that moment was as caretaker was as, you know, support staff for him and caretaker to my mom and brothers. That's often been the role that I've played in my life as we've talked about, but in the context of the supported therapy, the, the MDMA, I think really led me in a different direction, which was to, observe myself in that moment, kind of return to the memory. But instead of seeing it with the eyes that I experienced when it happened, I saw myself really as a daughter who was losing her dad. And so I kind of hovered over the scene, so to speak, mm -hmm. and really just felt such compassion for myself as, you know, I was a grown woman, but I was as a little girl who was yeah. losing her dad. And that really softened my sense of my own grief from, I guess, a problem to be solved or an obstacle to overcome and really replaced any of that achievement oriented, you know, baggage that I may have brought to my grief with a just deep sense of tender compassion and kindness um, that was directed towards my own self. So yeah. I do think that these models of therapy really provide a very embodied experience, right? Because there's something that's happening biochemically, but it's also mm. relational. It's also cognitive, right? It really is sort of a full package experience of therapy. That's um, really quite helpful, especially for grief and for trauma. Yeah. Just yesterday, again, coincidentally, somewhat coincidentally, I was watching the Netflix series on. Uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh i don't know if you've seen it but they're doing a, a really good job i think of getting that story across and uh, is this how to change your mind based yep. on michael Pollan's book yep, yeah yeah and he's kind of a narrator for for uh at least the first segment and pops up i think in subsequent segments as well so um who is this book for who's the audience for this book 
my marketing team has asked me that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It really is for all of us. I was going to say, I think think it's for everybody. It's for humans. humans. In some ways it's for my kids, right? I wanted to sort of explain to them what, what I was experiencing, Mm -hmm. what was happening kind of in the backdrop of their childhood. Um, And in some ways it's for my mother and my surviving brother as a way of telling our family story. But I, I also write this as a psychologist. I write this from my head and my heart as a way of validating how difficult it can be to wade through grief and wanting to provide some examples and some stories, but also some tips, you know, to, to be a thinker as well as an experiencer myself. Yeah, you write that, uh, that it was a hard book to write. And uh, in some ways, I think it was, it was part of your therapy, right? You wrote it in the year after these two major deaths, I believe, right? And was it also a COVID year? Was that part of it as well? It was a little bit before COVID, but okay. um, a lot of the edit editorial process happened in the midst of COVID. So yeah. there's certainly some of the themes that carried through from that experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been asking people about uh, my, my guests. I've been often bringing up the question of, well, this is a very difficult time that we're in right now. And uh, your your final chapter addresses it not talking about the specifics of this challenging period we're in, such such as the Ukraine and global warming and uh, and COVID and you know everything. Uh, but again, the you you talk about joy and the importance of being able to to hold that joy along with all this other stuff. Again, it's a walking that difficult path in between. And that, you know, in, in the subtitle, there is the word hope. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, say a little bit about hope. That'd be a good place for us to wrap this up. Yeah, that's probably a good place, especially because the book is pretty gritty. Like, it's, it's yeah. sad. The book is sad. Yeah. <laughs> but I am not sad. I am not categorically sad. I move in and out of sadness just as I move in and out of hope and of joy and of all of the other experiences. And I think if there's one thing I'd love to like communicate to people who may read this book, it's the sense that you can enter these painful moments. You can enter the things that you're afraid of, the things that have hurt you without fear that you'll get stuck there because there is the possibility of hope and the possibility of joy that's always lingering with us, lingering within us. Well, that's a, a wonderful close. Dr. Sherry Walling, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. What a treat. Thank you for the thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate it, David. I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to speak with my guest, Sherry Walling, Ph.D., about her 2022 book, Touching Two Worlds, A Guide for Finding Hope 
in the landscape of loss. As I say in our interview, I read her bio before getting into the book, and I was so awed by her external successes as a Yale-trained psychotherapist, author, speaker, consultant, mental health advocate, podcaster, and more, that I wondered how we might contact at a human level. However, once I started reading her book, that concern quickly dissolved. She writes very personally and openly about the trauma of losing her father to cancer and then six months later, her brother to suicide. Actually, as we talked, it became clear that her father's passing was not so traumatic in as much as it was expected and her father embraced his end with grace. She describes his passing, with the whole family present, as a transcendent and healing experience. It was the quick succession of the death of her brother that sent her into a powerful, deep grief. The news was like a punch in the gut. The shock caused her to fall to the ground. It was a total body experience. Her animal self wanted to punch something, kill something, screw something. In the end, she came to see that as an important transitional experience of complete embodiment. The fact that she had previous trauma therapy training with Bessel van der Kolk helped her to integrate the experience both cognitively and emotionally. As we talked, I became aware of synchronistic connections between us. The day before our interview, I had been to a small traveling circus. Sherry has been getting aerial arts circus training as a way of getting into her body more. Also, I mentioned my interest in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and the current Netflix series on that topic. I had just watched the third episode of that series about MDMA therapy for trauma. Turns out she has gone through that training herself and took MDMA in a therapeutic setting to work on her own trauma issues, and to prepare to become a psychedelic therapist herself. It also turns out that we both share an evangelical religious background in our early years. We've both been influenced by Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey, where he advocates following your bliss. She prefers the word joy. In addition to the pain in her life, she's aware of an underlying joy. We both share an appreciation for Jung's call to embrace an awareness of the opposites without becoming possessed by one pole or the other. It's that understanding and practice that gets her through this time of so much grief in the world. So who is this book for? It's really for everyone who has been or will become acquainted with grief. And that's all of us. In the end, it's not a sad book. It's one that will nourish both heart and mind and offer the companionship of a fellow traveler. Once again, the book is Touching Two Worlds, a guide for finding hope in the landscape of loss by Sherry Walling, Ph.D. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Diane Cronmiller from Nanaimo, Canada. I wanted to extend my sincere thanks for all the time and hard work you've poured into this important and enlightening podcast over the years. I understand it's not particularly lucrative, which makes your dedication and consistency particularly admirable. I'm celebrating my recent graduation from Athabasca University's Master of Counseling program. 
and it felt important that a message and donation to you be included in my closing ritual. Though we've never met, I feel a kinship with you. You've been a constant companion through a most challenging 3.3 years of online studies. As someone who's not a natural academic and struggles with sedentary screen time, the opportunity your podcast gave me to learn about psychotherapy while taking long walks in nature kept me inspired throughout my studies. For most of my degree, I was living on Salt Spring, a wonderful island full of hippies, farmers, and vacationers. I often felt isolated in my academic endeavor. However, as soon as I slipped on your podcast, I had the sense of being among colleagues, learning from the best professors in the field. There were many times I felt compelled to donate, but put it off with excuses of being a poor student. Let's face it, I will likely be in student debt for a long time, and yet I still manage to spend money on things of much less value than your podcast. With this realization, I decided to contribute a humble $5 a month in support and appreciation. Thank you for all you have done towards my edification and that of the psychological community at large. With deep gratitude, Diane. Thank you, Diane Cronmiller, for your endorsement and your ongoing donations. It's been my privilege to accompany you on your academic journey. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. You have no idea how much it warms my heart as I scroll through the list of regular donors each month to see each one of you. They're just like old friends. So once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Sherry Walling, PhD, for her deep and soulful sharing around her remarkable book, Touching Two Worlds, a guide for finding hope in the landscape of loss. By the way, we mentioned the Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind, which provides a wonderful introduction and overview of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. I really encourage all my listeners to watch this exceptional series. It's very well done. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Mark Changizi, co-author of the new book, Expressly Human, Decoding the Language of Emotion. Mark Changizi is a cognitive scientist with several previous books about his research, including Vision Revolution and Harnessed. He's been a researcher and or professor at University College Cork, Duke University, Caltech, and Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Be sure to join us for some challenging, mind-opening discussion. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious planet. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.